Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. Oh, that's right. I'm laughing because, you know, we usually have some pretty funny conversations before we get going live on these Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable discussions. And I think this one probably took the cake because we talked about leprosy, dengue fever. We talked about tomahawk missiles and some other fun, interesting stuff, which I won't repeat. So, all right. Welcome to each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us around the interwebs. Whether you're across the continent, you are here in the U.S., or you're somewhere in outer space on a SpaceX rocket. Welcome to the Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. As always, I get to welcome my very good friends, Stephanie Howard, Terry Fletcher, Scott Kraft, Christine Hall. Paul Spencer is away on a much-deserved vacation this week, so I hope he's not tuning in. All right, with that said, we are live, and we have a great program set up for you guys. So let's go ahead and jump straight, and let's start talking about our first of the topics. So Terry always likes to say things like, you never shut up, Sean, and I'm never going to get to talk about my topic. So we're going to talk about mine first today. And you're right. We are. Because I, I think it's actually a, a, <laughs> an incredibly important topic, which is cost sharing. And the fact that now that the public health emergency is over and has been over for quite some time, if you haven't been paying attention, people have to pay their co-insurance. They have to pay their co-pays. They have to pay their deductibles. So let's go ahead and jump straight into it. Terry, I'm going to mute myself because I want you to have all the time <laughs> you need to talk about this stuff. Go ahead, buddy. That's a pain in my... Okay. So, yes, Sean and I were related as brother and sister in another life. Yes, drama. Um, so I wanted to bring a topic today to the panel, and that is waiving co-pays and deductibles. I know that during the public health emergency, when everyone was told to stay home, some people were out of a job, things shut down, COVID happened. And so the government eased regulations when it came to collecting out-of-pockets. When it came to testing, they paid for all that. There was no out-of-pocket for that. When it came to treatment for COVID, you had the option, whether as a provider, whether you wanted to charge the patients 20% or what their co-insurance or co-pays were, but they weren't going to pay you the extra. So if you lost that money, you lost that money. That was up to you. And then people started saying, well, I'm going to keep doing this and you can't do that. So it was kind of like the, the HIPAA situation where you weren't going to get a violation as long as we were in a public health emergency by using a platform that wasn't HIPAA protected. But again, the public health emergency ended over three months ago. And so now we're back to regular rules, but there's some caveats we have to be mindful of. 
So waiving cost sharing sometimes is referred to as professional courtesy. Some people put it as an employee benefit. Um, some people unfortunately use it for their marketing ploy. Oh boy, that's a bad idea. And there are legalities when it comes to that, that you cannot do that. Let's first start with federal programs. Federal programs say that there's a reason that you, there's a cost sharing amount. So and it's under the CFR. They talk about this all the time. It's to deter overutilization. If things are free, and remember, a lot of Medicare patients, their outing for the month is to come to your office. Your office is glorious now. It's not like it used to be back in the day when I first started in healthcare in the 80s, where it used to be very sterile, white walls, uncomfortable chairs, outdated you know, magazines, no TVs, no refrigerators, nothing like that. You walk into a doctor's office now, it's it's wonderful. It smells like fresh baked cookies. You've got a refrigerator with all kinds of snacks. You've got soap operas on one wall. Where are you going to the doctor, Terry? <laughs> oh, man. I was about to say, where California. are you going, man? <laughs> it's beautiful out here. You've got ESPN on the other wall. You've got a kid's play area. It's awesome. And then I know that a lot of the Medicare patients and even patients that are not Medicare age, they, they actually don't mind going to the physician's office if this is how they're getting out of the house. But in saying that, if things are free for anybody, doesn't matter your age, it can be overutilized. I'm seeing that happen with telehealth right now for you know inc incidental things instead of actually medically necessary things. And so one of the deterrents is having to pay a share of cost. And that's also how fee schedules are created. There is a mindset and a calculation that the doctor is going to get paid a certain amount from the patient the payer is going to have their responsibility for a clean claim. And that's the total of what the physician is going to get. They don't look at it as just what the patient or what the payer pays. And you can't submit a claim that isn't your actual charge. And your actual charge is what you want to collect in total, which includes, includes any kind of, um, you know, preferred provider write-offs and things like that. And so if you're telling a patient insurance only and you're charging 150 expecting to get only paid 100 when they're out of pocket, let's say is 25, then your actual charge is less. Your actual charge is actually 125. And now you're in a false claim. Now you've got all kinds of things you opened up. So that's part of it. That's, you know, and then federally it's, it's terrible. And I could give you all kinds of anti-kickback where I had one doctor say, well, I give professional courtesy to all of my ER doctors. I'm like, do they refer any patients to you? Oh yeah, all the time. And they love it because I do. And I'm like, oh boy, stop right there. So if you get a referral from a doctor and there's any kind of problem with the fact that, or any kind of suspect, you know, uh, activity that you have waived that doctor's out of pocket. Remember, it's not part of a Hippocratic oath. AMA does not buy into it. They haven't for 50 years as far as waiving a doctor's out of pocket. It's for financial hardship and it has to be proven financial hardship. And then before I give it out to the panel, because I know there's a lot of conversation on this, then look at commercial plans. I mean, we could talk about federal forever, but commercial plans also do the same thing. They have their fee schedule set to include what the patient's paying out of pocket. So if you tell a patient they're not going to have an out of pocket, you could be in violation of that contract. And it's not your contract to violate. It's a patient's, patient's policy. And so if, if you want to give a discount, let's say, for a patient who has some kind of problem, the payers are saying, well, I want the discount too. So you'd have to discount your total charge, not just what they pay, the total charge. They're like, well, we want to get some of that in on that discount. 
And doctors are like, well, that doesn't make sense. I still want them to pay what they owe me, but I just want the patient not to have to pay. Then guess what? You have to contact them and say, hey, on this individual patient, can I write this off or can I adjust this off? And most payers say no, but they can make payments. But then also you have to be careful of what I just saw on an OIG site of the scams where they say, oh, well, they tell patients, just know I'm going to send you a statement three times, ignore it, and you just have to pay a dollar a month. That's a scam. And they know that exists. So I know I just kind of opened Pandora's box on this, but the biggest thing is, and it's not best practice. This is, this is a legal situation. And in the monetary penalties, this is giving federal program beneficiaries um, remuneration to influence them ordering services. And if it's free, that's influence. And that's under 42 USC 1320A. See, Sean, I know how to do that too. Anti-kickback is also 42 USC under 320A, 7AA7 and 42 CFR 1003. So we can always rattle off these numbers. But the reason I did that is because it's a legal position and a federal regulatory position. And now you're also dealing with commercial plans. Unless there is a proven financial hardship, you can't waive out of pocket. And with certain plans, you have to get their permission first. And the biggest um, word they use is routine. Routinely wake, waving these out of pockets, making it part of your park bench that you're advertising on, making it part of something that entices patients to stay there um, in your practice because you're going to give them money. And, you know, and money means they're, they're getting something they get to keep in their pocket that they don't have to give to you. Now, there is a wrinkle before I turn it over and I, I guess Christine or, or Scott, I'll give it to you because I know you deal with it too. Um, one of the things that comes into play is now the No Surprises Act. And I know everybody's like, yeah, but have you seen the NSA? The patients are saying, you surprised me with the bill three months later so I don't have to pay you. I'm like, that's not what the No Surprise Act is. You need to educate. <laughs> I know Scott's laughing because you know we get this. The No Surprise Act means that if you're an out-of-network provider or if you are in an out-of-network facility, and the patient was or the patient was at an in-network facility and you're an out-network provider and you try to charge them an out-of-network fee, you can't do it. It has to be adjusted to in-network fee or you have to go to a resolution to negotiate that fee. The problem is I'm noticing patients are now gaming the system, buying terrible insurance and saying, you know what, you still have to only charge me what was in-network. And so it's like, oh my gosh. So there are things there, but you notice I didn't say free. I didn't say free. So Scott, what are you seeing on this? Uh, you know, when, when you had mentioned the No Surprises Act and what patients were saying, I think we should do an episode or a podcast one day where we talk about a topic in healthcare like HIPAA and we're allowed to only make like wrong answers about what it means. Um, you know, I think it's important that you have a financial policy in place that people understand as part of compliance. I mean, it never... Setting aside some of the, the park bench issues that you talked about, or before we get to that, it never ceases to amaze me when I'm at a doctor and I literally have my wallet in my hand because I know as somebody who has insurance that I have an obligation and they just say, well, we'll bill you or we'll do something like that. Um, Sean and I have been involved in cases, Sean probably more than I, where the, the whole focus of the case is that patients aren't being asked to pay their share in an organized way for various reasons related to benefits. And so, you know, I think this starts with having in your compliance plan 
what are the specific and legally actionable ways in which a patient may or may not have to pay their obligation? And it, you know, more often than not, that's going to start and stop with financial hardship and how you quantify that. Because, you know, there is this sort of law of unintended consequences, right? Where if, if you know, I'm in a network of people, right? And I understand from, from, you know, let's say we're all at the coffee shop or something having a conversation. And I say, well, you know, when I go to the doctor, I never, pay, I never pay. And everybody else is paying like 20 and $30, right? Like suddenly people, even for that nominal amount, are going to start looking at other providers. So, you know, it is important that you have policies in place that start with front end collections, because Terry had made the point about the three statements. I hear that virtually every time I work in a practice, like we send three statements, we send them over to collections, we send three statements, we write it off. And, and you know, look, there are, there are some regulations in place with respect to, uh, you know, cost of collections and things of that nature. But, um, you know, your goal should be to collect the money, not to have some policy that, you know, essentially makes it look like you're trying to collect the money when you're really not. I wanted to jump in there. So, Oh, I'll sorry, Sean. In. Go ahead. Nope, nope. I will wait. I will wait. I don't want to get yelled at by another uh, panelist, so I'm I'm just gonna sure. sit back and bide my time. Ladies first. Good. You got this. So one. I I wanted to piggyback off of of that, Scott. Uh, I I tell providers you're never doing the patient any type of a benefit because if you if you delay the payment of that copay coinsurance deductible at some point it's going to come up. And I don't know about you, but if I got a bill in the mail that was $1,500 of aggregated share of cost, well, now I've got a financial hardship. I've got to figure out how I'm going to incorporate this payment. And if I, you know, a lot of our Medicare patients are on fixed incomes. So that day is never really going to come that they're, they have the availability to pay three or four or five, six months worth of co-pays at one time. The other thing I wanted to point out is when we're talking about uh, a proven financial hardship, our organizations have to have a policy on hardship. What is it? Is it the federal poverty guideline? Is it above? Is it 150% of that poverty guideline? What is that? And then what does proven mean? Do they need to submit their documentation to, to support that? Or is an attestation enough for the patient to sign and we keep on file from that patient. So a lot of things go into preparing for collecting or, or to write off that hardship and then making sure that we don't actually inadvertently create the hardship. We have patients that basically said at one practice, um, I know they were showing me what they did as far as trying to prove it. And they said, well, and I said, well, these patients are making over six figures. Where, where how can they not afford it? And they said, well, they're also spending six figures. And so we're allowed. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, the one lady, she's like, yeah, my credit card bills, I have about 40,000 in debt. And she had on a bigger diamond than I had. And she had on this, you know, they had three cell phones. And I'm like, you're not getting the hardship situation. Like you said, federal poverty level, you know, they, they can't pay it because they can't make ends meet versus they can't pay it because they spend too much money or two totally different things. But just before I know Sean wants to comment on this, this is a funny thing. So recently there was an ER visit in my family and we got a bill and uh, we have a PPO and it said on there, none of it was covered because it was an out of network physician, but I was in a net network facility and it was $780. 
Okay, so I get this bill. I call the office and I said, "Hey, they sent that to the wrong person." They sure did. I said, "Hey, I'm in a net network facility." I said, "Where's I?" And I go, "And I don't recognize this physician." She goes, "Oh, wait. Let me find a physician that I can put on there that that will." Oh, it gets, it gets better. It gets better, and by better, I mean worse. I'm like, wait, what? And I could not stop laughing. I I, I was hysterical. I'm just like, "What are you gonna do?" She goes, "Uh, okay. Here's one that's on on your plan. We should have billed." his information. I go, did I see this doctor? No, but he's on, he's on the plan. So then you'll only have 25. I'm like, and I'm going to leave it for Sean to go ahead and turn it away. No, no, no. Before I have somebody else yell at me, Stephanie, Stephanie do you, uh, do you want to go I won't first? Tell you yes, turned out, but let's just say they they realize, like you said, Scott, wrong person to deal that with. That's funny. Um, so I was just going to speak more to the policy because I, I came across a practice last year where in the audit process, multiple things were downcoded. And I was like, why is everything a two? Uh, and I get it back and the provider's upset with me and they're like, well, that patient's self-pay, I'm not going to charge them more. And it's like, not only can you not have separate fee schedules, for example, within the practice, you have to treat everybody the same. So when we're talking about these policies, it has to be something that's followed throughout every step of the revenue process. It's not just, oh, we're going to apply a discount. You can't change things around just to make a smaller fee go out the door for that patient. Um, one of the other things I wanted to say too, and Scott, this is in line with some of what you were saying. Years ago, I was involved in a federal criminal case with Sean. And as I was testifying during that trial. Let me just be clear. I was not, I was not the criminal on trial. No, he, Let me just be clear. He was not. You, you wouldn't be calling me in to help with that. <laughs> um, no, I'd be calling Ron Chapman. Yeah. <laughs> but during that that particular trial, the prosecutor tried to bring out a bunch of records for self-pay patients. And ultimately, you know, the defense stopped that from leading down that path because it wasn't a part of the initial information brought forward. But where the prosecutor was going with this was, you know, how is it that self-pay patients were all treated differently? Um, this particular provider had a lot of issues in the in the billing area and in some other criminal areas. But the main focus there was why why are you not consistently treating everybody the same? And I highly doubt, I didn't have any part in that in my review process, but I highly doubt this physician had a self-pay policy in place. And um with this practice that I, I came across last year, you know, they were just saying to me, well, we have an internal policy that says if a patient has an unpaid balance, they can't come back for a follow-up visit. And they were, I believe they were dermatology. They were dealing with some patients who had a cancer diagnosis. And it's like, then you need to look at that policy too. You need to have a self-pay policy in place. You need to look at the other policy. You can't just write things off because you need the patient to come back into the practice. Yep. Okay. Finally, my turn. So a couple of things that I want to set straight really quick and make sure we're all on the same page. Remember, a provider or a practitioner or even a supplier who routinely waives Medicare copayments or deductibles is misstating its actual charge. It's that simple. Forget about 42 U.S.C. 1395U and 
42 CFR 405.501 and all these different sections. Forget about that. Let's just keep it simple, right? A provider or practitioner or supplier who routinely waives Medicare copayments or deductibles is simply misstating their actual charge. Now, it's illegal, and I want to be crystal clear on this. It is illegal for charged-based providers, practitioners, or suppliers to routinely waive Medicare copayments and deductibles. And there's that key word, routinely. So the and, and Terry hit on a couple of these, and I, I just want to reinforce these, and, and then we can move to the last thing that I'll say about this. The routine waiver of deductibles and copayments by charge-based providers or practitioners is unlawful because it results in, one, a violation of the False Claims Act, two, a violation of the anti-kickback statute, and three, excessive utilization of items and services that are paid for by the federal payer program. So you got to be careful. Now, the only one that I'm really going to talk about from a legal standpoint is the False Claims Act. And when I'm talking about the False Claims Act, I'm talking about 31 USC subsections 3729 through 3733. And again, keep it very simple for the purposes of this discussion. The False Claims Act provides that any person who knowingly submits or causes to submit false claims to the government is liable for three times the government's damages, which is what they refer to as treble damages, plus plus a penalty that is linked to inflation. So, you know, it's never advised to, you know, commit a crime, but especially during a public health emergency like what we just came out of where, you know, you know, things are inflated. We're, we're in a hyperinflated state right now. Remember, the False Claims Act itself can arise in other situations, such as when someone knowingly uses a false record material to a false claim or improperly avoids an obligation to refund the government. So we can quickly take this from submitting a false claim to not following through under uh, 64. 401 or 6402 of the Affordable Care Act, which is the voluntary refunds under the Medicare self-reporting. So folks, listen, we'll wrap up this segment by simply saying this, the routine waiver of copays and or deductibles, no mas. And to Christine's point, you've got to have a policy. You've got to have an effective policy in place. Now, in a physician's practice, the good thing is we don't have to do a DTI, right? We don't have to do a debt to income ratio. We don't have to use a poverty scale or a sliding scale. Now that could change depending on what state you're in. In a physician's office under title 18 of the social security act, it simply says a provider has to ask the patient if there is anyone other than themselves financially responsible for that bill. And if the patient says no, then you have them fill out a hardship form. A hardship form is not a blanket waiver. It has to be done each and every single time. And it should not be given to your friends 
who are lawyers, your golf buddies, who are CEOs and corporations. A hardship form means somebody who, if they were forced to pay their copay or deductible, they would not be able to receive the medical care from your practice because it would preclude them from being treated. If you are receiving any funding from the state or from the federal government, then you have to use the poverty scale, the sliding scale, your charity write-offs and things of that nature. So again, be careful, be smart. If you don't know what you're doing, ask somebody who can help you. All right, let's jump in and let, now, the, ahead, Scott, one more thing please. I wanted to say, and I'm, I'm asked this question all the time, or I should say it's told to me as a statement. Somebody will say, well, I don't have a contract with this insurance. I can do whatever I want. No. Um, you, you, you know, when, when you're filing like claims, <laughs> when you're filing claims and you're accepting assignment and you're dipping into the patient's non-network benefits, they're going to tell you exactly what the patient owes you. Uh, and you are obligated to make every attempt to collect that money. Uh, and every attempt doesn't mean I'm just going to try to send three statements and then let it fall into the abyss. Right. And I, you know, I, I think a lot of the cases that we have seen, at least that I've seen, is that situation where providers trying to ride into a non-network situation, take what the insurance pays and walk away. And that's not how that works. I have one more quick thing to say on this. You know, we, we focus quite a bit on Medicare, Medicaid and the federal payers, but I think it's important to remember that each state also has the state laws for insurance and how insurance each state also has their own anti-kickback laws. So while we, we talk about the federal program because it packs the biggest punch, don't forget that you still have state laws that you might also be violating thinking that, well, it's just a commercial insurance or an HMO or something of that nature, but you might be violating state law and be subject to that. So real quick, Victoria Mall, it's been a long time since uh, I've seen Vicky and She's, she's a buddy, um, you know, and she brings up something where she's talked about, I've had providers um, waiving co-pays for patients because they were Amish. So believe it or not, there's actually a program called the Amish Healthcare Financing. And there are um, Amish communities that have actually negotiated prices with local hospitals and health systems for their members in exchange for what they consider a quick cash payment. So as long as there's not something that violates any state statute, law, regulation, or whatever it may be, um, you know, keep in mind that there are always opportunities for special communities, um, especially with religious affiliations and things of that nature, to be able to negotiate under a self-funded plan. But just the basic concept, I'm with Victoria on this, just the basic concept of um, waiving a copay for somebody because they're Amish, probably not going to fly. Um, uh, Betty Stump, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen Betty out there. Um, and we'll get to her comment in just a little while. All right. So I want to move to our next topic and I'm going to throw Scott right back here into the main box because this was one where I don't think a lot of folks truly understand. Um, I shouldn't say truly understand. I don't think a lot of folks have yet gone through a targeted probe and educate review. Okay. It's not an audit. According to CMS, it's a 
nurse review for medical necessity and other dysfunctions that exist in your medical record. So I'm going to pause because I really want Scott to talk about this absolutely loony education session that he and I went through. Last sure. Week. So the, the provider had been selected for TPE. Um, a number of notes had been looked at. Uh, virtually all of them uh, had a deficiency, at least in the view of this reviewer. Uh, and so to Sean's point, the TPE is essentially a, a, it's a benefit, as they like to say, right? Like, like, like <laughs> it's a benefit in that they are going to get you on the phone and they're going to offer you some, uh, you know, free, free education about some sort of defect with response with regard to the records. And so we came behind and we looked at all these records and, um, you know, one of the things in this position, and I think for those of you who audit and have been through this before, uh, you're sometimes trying to make your best guess as to what the nature of the deficiency is based on the uh, manner in which the documentation was written. And so when we got on this session, we thought it was going to be an interactive opportunity uh, to participate. And the educator basically opened with like a 30 minute uh, or so uh, intro uh, determining or at least explaining in her view what they believe the flaws were uh, with the records, right? And so in this case, um, you know, we had some uh, psych records where the one issue, it was a, a psych diagnostic evaluation with medical services, uh, 90792, uh, for those of you keeping score at home. And the one deficiency that they found was that there was no family history, family psychiatric history in most of these records. And, you know, I will say I, I looked I looked at them and I found a few other things that they didn't want to talk about. But, I, you know, I know when to keep my mouth shut and just work with my provider. But, um, you know, the thing that that struck me about the TPE process is. We, we were having trouble getting a firm definition on what we were expecting the provider to do to obtain this family history for a couple of reasons. One, um, the other providers who are billing the 99223s and 99222s are no, uh, no longer obligated as part of their work to collect the family history. Now, you know, while there are probably some situations where our provider could have done a better job getting this information into the record, we're looking at a lot of notes where the provider, or excuse me, where the patient is essentially nonverbal. Um, the patient is having some sort of psychiatric crisis. Uh, and that's all that's well documented through the note, right? It's all pretty clear that the patient's overall ability to participate uh, is fairly minimal. And the TPE reviewer is saying, well, you know, the physician could call another physician, the physician could call the patient's family. Uh, you know, and the question that I, I was trying to ask that I did not get a great answer to on the call, and I still don't have one uh, now, is what are we agreeing is like a reasonable amount of effort before? Because when I said, you know, I think what we're seeing here is the provider is unable to obtain the information and has simply not said that, right? Has not given any insight that they can't. And she said, well, oh, no, 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 you can't just say it's unobtainable. And I'm like, well, at some point it is unobtainable, right? Like at some point, you're going through a process to try to determine. And I think that was sort of where we left it. And that was what was interesting about the process to me, because I think in this instance, there was a real opportunity to provide some meaningful uh, education to this provider. Fortunately, uh, you know, Sean and I were able to do a lot of that work, but we were just sort of stuck in this inert kind of 
what am I, what am I as the provider, what is a reasonable attempt to collect family history? When she literally said at one point, they could try to call three different people for each patient. So the part that was the most frustrating for me, and, 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 and I want to be very clear, I've gone through probably 30 or 40 TPE education sessions, and I would say nine out of 10 of them have been excellent. The nurse reviewers are, you know, look, they come on, they give you their results. They tell you, you know, this is what the policy says. This is my, you know, understanding of it. This is my interpretation. And then they give you an opportunity to respond. And then you kind of engage in a meaningful dialogue. This was a situation where this individual didn't want to hear anything other than the sound of her own voice. And the problem that we had was when she said, this is the personal preference of our medical director and myself. Well, I don't care what your personal preference is. I don't care what the personal preference of your medical doctor, uh, your medical director is. If it's not in the local coverage determination, and if it's not in the national coverage determination, if it's not in a local coverage article, then I don't care. It's like what they say about opinions. They're like buttholes. Everybody has one. I don't really care. But the bottom line comes down to this. They are asking a provider who is providing psychiatric services for patients who have psychoses, behavioral health issues, dementia, Alzheimer's, other you know manifestations that preclude them. I mean, what are you supposed to do? And that was our point. What are you supposed to do when a patient says, I don't want you talking to my family? What kind of precludes us from getting that history information? Doesn't mean it wasn't done. We tried. And, and these. And look. No, I was just going to add please. that these are patients who typically required inpatient level care for specific psychiatric reasons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, patients who are inpatient who are probably on Neurontin or Gavapentin, they're on Halidol, they're on other behavioral medications that impact their ability to communicate in an effective manner. And can one of you all please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because you guys are, are all EM uh, uh, Yodas. I seem to remember something either in the 95 or the 97 guidelines that stated if a patient is unable to communicate historical information, that it would automatically bring it to a comprehensive history. It, am I imagining that? Because I remember reading that in several places. Well, so if they document it, they have to defer it for that reason. Well, and, and that was an issue. Wait, hold on, Sorry. hold on. That was an issue within this review because that came up as one of the questions, right? Well, the family history is unobtainable. Well, did they try to call another provider? Did they try to call the patient's family, right? And she, there was a standard of application to that part of it that seemed excessive to me, um, you know, and it seemed like there were a lot of gymnastics versus saying like, this is a patient who's having a psychiatric breakdown of some kind and is unable to communicate effectively, right? Like in one of these notes that was not credited, the documentation specifically stated the patient at that point 
went silent and refused to speak or answer any additional questions, right? And that's when I think that's what begat this conversation about, well, you can call the patients, you can call another provider, you can call the patient's family. And none of that was part of the guidelines, right? The guidelines essentially define it. And, and as Christine says here, I think the, the gap was, Christina, sorry, Christina posted something from the guidelines. If the physician is unable to obtain a history from the patient or other source, the record should describe the patient's condition or other circumstance, which precludes obtaining a history. And that was where the gap was because this reviewer had an expectation that our provider was going to be making multiple phone calls to attempt to obtain this information. And, you know, a couple of things beyond that. Uh, within the local coverage determination that they had sent us uh, and sent to the provider for the 90792, one of the things about the 95DGs with respect to 99223 is it very specifically states one item each of past family, past social, past medical, right? So we sort of knew that when we audited to those guidelines. I don't have the LCD open, but the, the LCD doesn't say that. The LCD says that the provider should obtain uh, a family, social, and medical history. The provider should obtain PFSH, but it doesn't put any framework around it. And, and you know, I can appreciate the point about our provider saying to, to mollify this medical director, well, we tried to obtain the family history and we couldn't. I, I think my, my concern going into a next round of this is, well, okay, this reviewer is going to come back and say, well, did they call the you know, person's second cousin? Did they call like this person? And, I, and I, it's an unreasonable uh, burden in that circumstance, given the totality of the notes. And, and like I say, I mean, the, the, the part that, that I think caught my attention is I, I could have found probably four or five things that were very good framework things to educate this provider on with respect to, you know, documenting these psychiatric notes. And this reviewer was literally like, oh, everything was fine except for the family history. But the family history was so big of a deal that we were going to reject this 36 out of 40 times. I think one thing that's interesting to note with yeah. TPE right I, now, I don't know if anybody else is seeing this, but it seems like mental health, behavioral health, psychotherapy, um, anything that has to do in that space is being attacked or at least being um, inquired because I'm getting providers saying the same thing that. I, I mentioned I had one that's billing only level five office visits. And she's like, but I'm not really certified in mental health, but I am a DO. And I said, well, if you look at the rules under mental health, you have to have some kind of certification, some kind of anything that shows you specialize in that, even if you can reflect a patient population. And my, my, have any of that. Yeah. My, my suspicion is there's probably a few reasons for that. Like the utilization of these services the coverage, in, yeah. increased quite a bit through right. the pandemic. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of chatter about access to these services, shortage of providers. And, you know, look, as someone who has read uh, probably 10,000 psychotherapy notes over the past few years, if not more so, uh, one of the things I tell psychiatric providers rendering psychotherapy all the time is like, this is not, you know, you guys having talking over happy hour, right? And I don't mean that negatively, but a lot of times these notes lack clinical foundation. And it's not saying that the work didn't happen, but I just read it and it's like, this could be a summary of what like Sean and I talked about during a 90 minute drive to a client site, right? We just kind of touched on a few topics and, you know, then we got to wherever we're going and, and there aren't these sort of foundational things like 
what is the method of therapy that was used? Like, what are the goals of care? How is the patient actually doing? And so for those two reasons, I could certainly see uh, these notes being fodder for, for TPE. And my guess is that they probably had a, a number of audit successes looking at psychotherapy services for those reasons. Well, I think you hit no, it. I have something yeah, really. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to piggyback really quick on what Scott said because I've actually started to talk to my providers about what they learn clinically when they're in school for this because this has been a huge finding for me constantly. When I work with someone new in the behavioral health space, there's almost nothing there. It's so generic. The patients don't look different from each other. The patient encounters don't look different from each other. And the more and more that I talk to them and get their mindset behind their training clinically, I'm finding out that they're actually trained in school for this to put minimal information to the point where some of them have not even wanted to state the topic they were discussing with their patients. So that's been a huge area for me from an education standpoint to get them to understand that, you know, yes, it's up to their discretion as that treating provider during that encounter, but in some way we've got to have enough there to support medical necessity. And one last thing I'll say about it quick, Christine, is that, um, this is the prime example of why we need to be ahead of things because you are at the mercy of the person who's auditing you from the outside you're at the mercy of the subjectivity of the services their you know their um, understanding or what they think they can get away with and you know what they could be saying something that's way out in left field that makes no sense but it's up to you to defend it later on so at least in this situation, it sounds like the provider has what's needed there to help defend this situation. But there's so many times we're fighting with with our, um, you know, physicians, our APPs, our therapists about what we want to see. And this is exactly why, because you're at their mercy. But I also think, Stephanie, um, I like to look at kind of how we got here. So the psychotherapy codes, they had a massive change in 2013. Now, that was 10 years ago. But then think two years after that, we had ICD-10. Shortly after ICD-10, we entered into the COVID nightmare. And so what happened in 2013 was we, we started allowing E&M visits at the same time as the psychotherapy. And while psychotherapy visits allow for that separate decreased documentation, the E&M doesn't. And what, we're, what I'm seeing now is a lot of these TPEs are really focusing on the dual reporting of the ENM and the psychotherapy on the same day and unfortunately we're we're seeing what we had feared was that the ENM is maybe not supported at that level or that frequency I know it's two chronic conditions and medication management but you can't have two 99214s in one week I mean is the patient ever going to get better are you ever seeing any progress and I think that might be what is triggering some of these TPE audits, because like we've been talking about, psychotherapy has seemed to be the hot topic in 2023 and 2022, actually. Well, I think also part of it is because they opened up the reimbursement for so much of it, including screenings. And what I believe, hopefully, the federal government and a lot of the private payers did, they opened it up because of all the high depression, you know, that came from COVID, that came from the pandemic. Um, all of the mental health issues that have come the last couple of years and just some of the things that are out there. But 
the problem is I think they open it up because remember for those of us that have been in healthcare over 30 years, this is, that was never paid before. We were trying to find any diagnosis that didn't relate to mental health because 25 years ago, if you had ICD-9, a 300 code series for anything, it wasn't covered or it was very limited in coverage. But now I think doctors are looking for it more as a value, no, as a money added service instead of a value added service on something that's now opened up for that kind of patient population. They're saying, oh, look what we can build now to add money to our services. And it makes me sad because I think it's an important ad, especially some of the screenings. But when I see it being used for everybody, I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy is advanced care planning for a healthy 25 year old. And they're saying, so we need a plan for your death. I'm just like, for high risk, what? And they're like, well, they have, you know, cholesterol, high cholesterol. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I mean, even chronic care management, I know there's doctors saying you can't even get an appointment without it and without being enrolled in the program. And I'm just like, you guys stop. So when we get into some of these TPE audits, and I think they're now seeing that what the intent to open up these services was for was to make it available when it never was, but people are looking at it more as monetary ads instead of value ads. And that's my soapbox on that. <laughs> Good point. Go ahead, Scott. Uh, yeah, Do you have a final yeah, thought on this? Yeah, or, 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 or I, well, I was going to say it's almost it almost reminds me of like smoking cessation sometimes when I see it in documentation where the provider, the patient's there and the provider's like, yeah, I'll do a little psychotherapy, right? Like it's almost like a throw in that, you know, has dubious necessity. All right. So I want to go to our last topic of today. And, um, I want to talk about templates uh, because again, templates continue to be highly problematic. Templates are good. Templates can, there, there's an absolute place and a time to use a template. But what is so critical is that each patient encounter has to be unique to what's transpiring for that patient at that moment. Cutting and pasting, carrying forward. Folks, voluminous medical records doesn't mean that you have great medical records. Voluminous medical records means that you have a bunch of crap that you probably haven't pared down from prior visits. One of the things that drives me absolutely insane when I used to do chart reviews all the time, and I still do for composite medical boards and preparing for trials and things like that. I'll, I'll go through and review medical records, but problem lists. When I see a problem list that has 22 problems on it and it starts with otitis media and it's from 1996. It makes my head hurt. I'm pretty sure your patient has not had an ear infection since 1996. Clear it. Get it off of there. Folks, I know that under the 21 and 23 inpatient guidelines, there's no longer a need to capture the elements of the history in the exam, right? But to me, the history of present illness has to be present because the history of present, 
the history of present illness paints a picture. It helps to drive the medical necessity, the medically necessary reason why the patient's there for today's encounter. It helps people like me when I have to go into court and I have a prosecutor that says to me, well, Sean, the doctor spent less than five minutes with the patient. How can you convince me in this jury that a 99214 was the appropriate level of service? And I'm able to go back and say, well, if you look at the history of present illness and the fact that the chief complaint states the patient presented to the office today with the complaints of in the history of present illness, even though we don't have to have these elements, these bullets, they still tell me the location, the duration, the timing, the context, the severity, the modifying factors, the associated signs and symptoms. These are all things that paint a picture. Sean, the problem is though right now, and it speaks to the problem we yeah, have is that a lot since Medicare relaxed the rules and said that ancillary staff can now fill out this information. A lot of the doctors really 100%. don't go back to read it or I don't know about you, but if you're a patient and I'm just going to say this from personal experience, I don't want to keep repeating myself from the medical assistant to the, if the med level comes in to then the doctor, a lot of patients wait till the doctor's there and then kind of want to tell them some things, but then they forget what they already told the first staff that walked in the room. And also don't forget doctors, yep. if you are uh, using time, you can't use the time it took for your ancillary staff to take all that information. But I think a lot of the lacking in the history is because staff is taking it. Not that they can't, that is actually a, a rule that they can. But I just don't believe, in my opinion, sure. from what I'm auditing, that the doctors are reviewing it, that they're going over it again, that the patients are giving the opportunity to well, get more I information. Think, I think you see that sometimes in the I, disjointed nature of the documentation, like more more common that things spring spring into the point, assessment Scott. and plan or spring. And it's like, oh, where did this come from? Right. Like, I don't or, or there's something yeah. in the history Look, that or that wasn't you, even addressed in the medical decision making. Right. You're like, wait a minute, the patient up here yeah. complained of chest pain, but there's nothing down here that talks about the chest pain. Or there's nothing in there about chest I, pain, I, and all of a sudden you see a stress echo being ordered, and you're like, who took that history complaint? And it's not documented. So yeah. I want to I want to read something real quick if I can. Okay. And I'm gonna make it very quick. Okay. So this comes from chapter three of the program integrity manual. And it's section 3.3.1.1, and it has to do with the medical record review. And to me, this is the most profound aspect of it, right? Because it talks about clinical judgment. Now, they're talking about it from a reviewer's perspective, meaning a nurse reviewer, an auditor, a UPIC, a RAC, one of these folks. So I'll make it very quick. Clinical review judgment involves two steps. The synthesis of all submitted medical record information, meaning the progress notes, diagnostic findings, medications, nursing notes, etc., to create a longitudinal clinical picture of the patient. And two, the application of this clinical picture to the review criteria is to make a reviewer determination on whether the clinical requirements in the relevant policy have been met. The MAX, CERTs, RACs, and UPIC clinical review staff shall use clinical review judgment when making medical record re review determinations about a claim. Clinical review judgment does not, listen to this, clinical review judgment does not replace poor or 
inadequate medical records. I mean, it's right there. So what they're saying is these reviewers can't use their clinical judgment to make a determination that the service is medically necessary because your provider's documentation basically sucked. Folks, please hear me on this, and I'll get off my soapbox. In the last 12 months, I've had such an honor and privilege to work with Ronald Chapman in five consecutive, not including all the other amazing attorneys that I'm working with on civil and criminal federal cases, but just Ron Chapman and I in the last 12 months have had five criminal cases. Every one of those resulted in a full acquittal at trial. And that's wonderful for an outcome. But had these providers had documentation out of the gate that painted a more clear, succinct, and definitive picture for what transpired during the course of those encounters, odds are they wouldn't have had to go through the nightmare that they went through. Some of them were in jail waiting their trial. Some waited three years to clear their name, some two years. But the reputational harm and damage that was done, even though they got a full acquittal at trial, it's done. Of those five providers, that Ron Chapman and I worked together to get their acquittal along with other experts in the case. The costs were exorbitant. But more importantly, of those five providers where their communities need them, only one of them is practicing medicine anymore. And we can't afford that. I don't know if y'all saw this today, but another rural hospital just shut their doors in North Carolina. We have lost 60% of the rural health clinics around this country dating back uh, about a decade now, and it's unsustainable. So I'm going to pause there. Let me go ahead and turn it over to Christine. Some final thoughts on today's episode in the last six minutes that we have here. I just want to remind providers that just because you have uh, you've paid a lot for your EMR, just because you have a contract with them or you pay a monthly subscription with the EMR, it's just a tool. Those templates are simply a tool. They're not a guarantee that the information is in there correctly. It's not a guarantee that the computer assist coding that's built into those EMRs is a fail safe. Um, you need to make sure that you're looking at your documentation to see if that level of service is actually supported first. Second, be careful with copy pasting from one day to the next day and maybe it's because I have one provider who does that because he says it, it makes it easier for him to review the history of the patient overall. However, it really makes the medical record difficult from an auditing perspective. When the auditors come in and they start to look at this, you're all over the place with this patient. And it's not reflective of what the examination should support. It's not reflective of the assessment and plan. Um, and it actually creates a bigger problem there. So remember, stick to your guns. You know. Write us a good soap note every visit. Stop worrying about how many boxes you have to click. Stop worrying about what the, the EMR thinks it should be. Get involved in your specific coding and then maybe make some changes to the template that support your methodology, what you need in that medical record. And I love Ginger's comment 
write notes you like to read. It's a great comment. All right, Terry, I'm coming to you next. Um, I would just say that you, you, if you're those of you that are doing the internal audits in your practice, and I know a lot of you on the podcast um, are are doing that, and you come here to get good insight. Remember, a lot of times that if you've worked at that practice for a long time, what we've seen as external auditors, we've seen assumptions made in the record. We've seen some things that have been, well, I knew the doctor meant to say that. So it's kind of, um, again, just they're giving credit where credit isn't due. So you might want to get peace of mind and get an external audit done. And this isn't to drum up business for us. We're all very busy, but we are all external auditors. But sometimes you might want to just take a look from a perspective that we don't have a stake in it. We're going to just look and see if you're right or if you're incorrect and how it looks and either give you peace of mind or say you got a problem. And so um, I just know sometimes internal auditing, you don't want to get your physician mad. You've kind of been doing it for a long time. And it can it's kind of like to me reminds me of going into a, a nail salon and you're like, oh, that that nail polish remover smells terrible. But once you're there for 10 minutes, you don't notice it anymore. And so all of a sudden you're like, oh, I guess it's the same thing. So just try to remember that. Good points. I, I, I was with you right up until the point of the nail salon. Sure. you. Were. All right. <laughs> hey, a little petty man. He never hurt anybody. All right. Um, Scott Craft, just to build on both points, um, as far as documentation goes, work with your providers to clean it up a little bit. Uh, one of the things when Sean had mentioned about the 22 diagnoses, on a chart, it's a little bit ridiculous. And as I, I'm the one who's reading those notes, and sometimes the last entry I'll see for a diagnosis is like MRI negative 2019 or something, and it just it it, it creates a, a lot of clutter within the documentation. And I think particularly when you think about internal audits and external audits and the framework under which you're auditing, I think you know I can say as an external auditor. I'm very thoughtful about comparing notes to previous notes to try to figure out what was carried forward. But, you know, these new guidelines created a real runway to just clean things up and write a good soap note. Uh, again, going back to what Ginger said, write a note you like to read, understand the clinical benefit of it, you know, and take the relief from the fact that it isn't this giant like make work project anymore. And a lot of the what I say sometimes when I educate is that the make work aspect of documentation went away in many cases. And I think that's what you need to think about embracing. All right. Such great insight. And if anybody's wondering what happened to Stephanie Allard, I didn't cut her off. She had a prior obligation with a client for some education that she had to get online with them for. So we appreciate her insights and her thoughts and hanging out with us for a little while. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of this Monday coding and compliance roundtable. We know you have some other choices out there on Mondays, and we always appreciate you guys choosing us, tuning in, logging on, and hanging out for a little while. Terry and I are going to be back tomorrow, Tuesday, with a hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. We have a great one lined up for you on compliance plans. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. 
He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.